Remain. So in Rahat uh, uh we look at a koan, and uh, in, in this koan, a monk named Wei Chow uh, asked his teacher, his name was Ayan, what is Buddha? And Ayan answered, you are Wei Chow. And that question, what is Buddha, has been one that many monks asked teachers. Uh, we have recorded some of these dialogues. One, uh, a monk asked his teacher, who is Mazu, what is Buddha? And Mazu said, this very mind is Buddha. And that's the startling statement, because we want to say, no, Buddha is always, you know, calm and peaceful, and we know this very mind is that. But nonetheless, this is Mazu's sense of what is Buddha. This very mind. And another monk asked his teacher, Unmon, what is Buddha? And Unmon said, a dried turd. <laughs> so you see, uh, there's a tradition uh, in which uh, when people ask what is Buddha, teachers tend to kind of divert them from the expected. Other people have asked what is Buddha outside of the Zen context. And what I'm going to mention tonight is Joseph Campbell. Uh, Joseph Campbell, in response to the issue of what is Buddha, said, he was the hero with a thousand faces. A thousand faces. Even for Buddhism, that's a lot. You know, uh, we were in Seattle and we went to the Seattle Asian Art Museum this past weekend. And uh, we saw some wonderful statues of Avalokiteshvara. And sometimes Avalokiteshvara is uh, depicted with many heads and many faces, like faces going in all directions with each head. And so we, we saw an Avalokiteshvara with 11 faces. And we saw an Avalokiteshvara with 13 faces. A thousand faces is very difficult to depict. But Joseph Campbell used this phrase to um, orient us to the archetype that in literature is repeated again and again and again. Um, and he thought that the story of Buddha was an example of this archetype. He said that there are some narratives that are so deeply embedded in the human condition that resonate with humans worldwide, across all cultures and times, that they are told and retold in many different um, guises, you know, many times. With our archetypal narrative. He said, the narrative of the hero with a thousand faces is that a person leaves the life that they're used to. 
and embarked on a journey, usually a journey of discovery of some kind. And goes into a strange land where there are many trials uh, that the hero has to deal with. And meets, hero meets many challenges. And on his journey, receives some kind of boon or a gift that hero eventually brings back to the ordinary world that he, he left. Um, sometimes in this journey, um, there is a death and resurrection or a rebirth myth that's included. It's always a, a point where the hero has to decide is is uh, the hero going to return to the world that they came from? And uh, when they do, the boon is brought back to the original world. And I think, you know, our lives have that kind of pattern to them. We have times of uh, ease and well-being, but they're always followed by trials, one kind of them or another. Things that we really have to struggle with. But if we're lucky, we gain something from the struggle, a boom from the struggle. And we bring it back to our normal life. But when we come back to the normal life, we often find ourselves on a path that has changed as a result of our experience. So Joseph Campbell called this the story of the hero. I think we could call it the story of every man. The literature and mythology is always about the exceptional individual. Even Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. Who fits this pattern? Uh, is is exceptional. Is it a thousand faces or is it eight billion faces? Maybe some of those thousand faces are ours. If Buddha was like this, who then are we who follow the path that Buddha shows? So I want to tell you a few stories of uh, Buddha's awakening, and uh, which kind of line up with this this uh, pattern that Joseph Campbell discovered. And um, let's see if we can see in any of these stories <coughs> things we've experienced in our own lives. One of the stories that comes from the uh, Pali Suttas it has Buddha talking to his monks and saying, uh, talking about the life he had before he became a monk. My father even had lotus ponds made in our palace, one where red lotuses bloomed, one where white lotuses bloomed, and one with blue lotuses, all for my sake. I used no sandalwood that was not from Varanasi. My turban was from Varanasi, as were my tunic, my lower garments, and a white 
sunshade was held over me day and night to protect me. I get the sense, you know, when I'm talking to his monks, you know, he's remembering, you know, how good he was way back then. Of course, he's in very different circumstances. He said even that during the rainy seasons, when one couldn't go out, he was entertained by minstrels without a single man among them. And you have to think of Buddha speaking these words to his sangha, all of whom had left home, were living with him, you know, in the forest. They were all going barefoot, they were begging, they were wearing clothing that was made of discarded cloth, even cloth that was burial cloth, taken from corpses in the Chernobyl. And they slept in the forest or underneath the open sky. And they listened to Buddha's talk. They see what he left behind to live like that. And then Buddha said, even though I was endowed with such fortune and such refinement, the thought occurred to me, when an ordinary person who is subject to aging sees someone who is aged, they are horrified and disgusted, oblivious to the fact that they too are going to age. When I reflected on this, I realized that I too am going to age. And so, my intoxication with youth entirely dropped away. And in the story that we have about the beginning of Buddha's search, we have a story that he encountered what are called the four messengers. First, he saw a person who was very old and feeble. And then he saw a person who uh, was very ill and unable to care for himself, but just lying on the ground. Then he saw a corpse, a person who had died. And it came upon him, you know, the suffering of the world and how we try to separate ourselves from that suffering. Oh, that's not me, I'm still young. He could have said to himself. But instead he said to himself, even though we feel disgusted when we see this, this is our inevitable fate. And he said his intoxication, youth and health and life, dropped away. And then the fourth messenger he saw was, he saw a moment who was doing walking meditation and very peaceful, calm. And he saw the monkeys, thought perhaps home leaving would be the path uh, that would allow him to investigate and relieve the suffering that he saw. So in a way, the story of Buddha's awakening is the unfolding of his realization 
of impermanence. It came from that insight when he saw the aged, the ill, and the dead. That insight into the ubiquity of change and impermanence. And that insight led to um, his great realization. Dogen said that recognizing impermanence is what makes us aspire to awaken in the first place. That is definitely true. You see, as I say this, how the aspiration to awaken and awakening are not separate, are not different. Bodhicitta, the mind that seeks the way, is Bodhi, is awakening. And the aspiration to awaken arises only out of an awakening. Otherwise, we just go about our normal life. So the way-seeking mind, which we value so it's always the aspiration to extend one's awakening. And that aspiration continues. Katagiri Roshi said, when we see the truth, the path becomes clear. So when we see the truth, practice arises at the same time. I'm going to pull back from this story and, and look at our own lives. Do we see examples of this, either in our everyday life or our spiritual lives? Does the path arise simultaneously with perceiving the truth? Is it possible for us to uh, relinquish the attachments that we have, the addictions we have, when we actually see the truth of how suffering arises and how we're not immune to it? I'll give you a, a very prosaic story from 40 years ago. Um, I stopped smoking. And the reason I stopped smoking was because I had this uh, illness, gastritis, which is an inflammation. And uh, it was very painful. And in fact, when I lit a cigarette and took a drag on the cigarette, I had intense pain. And when I put it off, out and stop, the pain went away. So I saw the truth of suffering. <laughs> and I saw how suffering arises from the attachments that we have and that we pursue addictively without any thought that the harm that we're told that would arise from this would actually arise from it. Um, 
people, I'm not going to tell you every detail of this story, um, but people know that uh, Buddhist spiritual quest involved a lot of asceticism, very serious, rigorous practice. Practice that really almost killed him. It was true. And uh, at one point, after he'd almost died, Buddha said, this can't be the path, because whatever hardships people have experienced on the path, it's not more than what I've experienced, and I haven't awakened yet. So there must be more. There must be a different path. And he remembered at that point how, as a child, he once spontaneously slipped in a kind of a meditative, into a kind of a meditative state. His father was uh, conducting some ceremony. He was sitting under a tree, a rose apple tree. And uh, he just kind of sat quietly and kind of slipped into Zazen. This description of the meditation he had very much. He remembered that at that moment and he said, Well, let me try this to see if this is the path for me. That's, that's part of the hero's journey that something shows up when it's needed to encourage us when we know we've taken the wrong path. I started meditating at a time when I had a, a lot of stress. And um, I was investigating all kinds of things like that. Uh, changing my nutrition, uh, supplements, you know, uh, and uh, meditation. And I was finding it helpful, and I realized that none of the things that I was doing that were helpful for me were things that kind of therapy I was practicing at the time would kind of uh, favor me sharing with my clients. Suggesting that it didn't kind of fit into the rules for how to do that kind of therapy. So I started looking around, you know, how were others practicing? And sure enough, there were people out there who were practicing in a way that made sense to me or that spoke to me. John Kabat-Zinn, practicing bringing mindfulness in a totally secular way into, into his work. I read it across a book by a man named Herbert Bloomfield, who um, wrote a book about uh, herbal supplements and how they help people with anxiety and depression. And I, I went to a workshop that he gave and I learned quite a bit. And when I gave him a copy of his book to sign it, He said, go for it. <laughs> he had no idea. Well, I guess he did have no idea why I had come to that workshop. But it was this kind of encouragement that comes kind of from nowhere. One of my favorite stories, uh, just before Buddha sat down to awaken, he was having all kinds of dreams. And the dreams were said to um, forecast his enlightenment. They were dreams that we would never consider as uh, the preface to enlightenment. Like he had a dream that 
Um, white grubs with black heads were crawling all over his legs. But this dream was understood to mean that uh, lay people everywhere uh, who, who would wear white when they went to a spiritual event and who did not shave their heads so they had black heads would come to, to his teachings. So, <laughs> but he had a bunch of dreams and, and he became convinced that he could awaken. And you know, he had his begging bowl. And he threw the begging bowl into the river in his next room where he was meditating. And the story is that the bowl floated upstream instead of downstream. And when it sank, it sank at exactly the same spot where Buddhas from ages past were their words at the same But I love this image of Buddha discarding his bowl. We have lots of imagery for this moment. There's, there's, a, there's a koan that says, when one person opens reality and returns to the source, a mendicant smashes his rice bowl. The movement to return to the source requires, includes, letting go of things that we thought were essential. And we have lots of imagery for this moment. Um, when the priest is ordained, you know, Shave your head, hard for ordination, but you need a little patch of hair. Head hair. It's called the shura, and it, it symbolizes our attachments. And the teacher uh, asks the, the, the candidate, uh, Is it okay if I shave myself? Ask him three times, so he has to be sure he's ready to give up his attachments. And if the answer is yes, three times. The shura is shaking. We have to leave the mist. And this is the, the practice that we have undertaken. We have the practice of opening our hand in this moment so that we can be present for this moment and continuing so that we can be present moment after moment, just like clinical science. In this path of ours, security is left behind so the moment can be entered forward. I'm just going to tell one other story, just because I like it so much. <laughs> this is after he awakened. And uh, he was like, you know, walking peacefully, doing kinhin through the woods. And uh, actually, another person came and saw him. And he looked so peaceful. 
And in some way, in harmony with his surroundings, the person said, uh, uh, you look so otherworldly. Are you a god? And the Buddha said, no. Well, are you a spirit? No. Are you a demon? No. Are you a human? No. So the guy who encountered the Buddha had just asked about four of the six realms of existence, and Buddha had claimed that he didn't live in any of them. So we said, well, what are you? There's that question. <laughs> what are you? And he said, I am awake. Of course, the word awake in Sanskrit comes from that, that root word, Buddha. Buddha means the one who is awake. And he said, I am awake. It happens sometimes that we recognize that we've made an existential change. A lot of times it's after we face a loss that we fear. And we know we are fundamentally changed. Different than we thought we were. Nick, if you don't mind, I'll just mention that you had told us that uh, before your mother passed, you thought it would be a, a disastrous trauma for you that you would never be uh, able to survive. And yet, I mean, it was very terrible. It made you find that you were not the person you thought you were. Maybe that's true of all of us. Here we are, these heaps of mud and water. But that's just what we should be. That's the perfect medium in which the lotus will grow. The only way we can awaken is to turn towards our difficulties, turn towards our impermanence, our illness, our death, and even our hindrances. And I want to remind you then of what Gogan said. He said, whether Buddha is present or not present, I trust he is right under our feet. Face after face is Buddha's face. Fulfillment after fulfillment is Buddha's fulfillment. 